This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. So tonight, um, if you haven't been here for Baptized Imagination 1 and 2, you might be a little nervous that... um, You've just stepped into part three. Um, (laughs) Don't worry if you haven't heard the previous lectures. um, I try to make sure there's something that you can walk away with, even if this is your first first dip into this topic. And as with all of our lectures, or most of them that happen on Friday nights, they are uploaded to our podcast on um, usually Tuesday or Wednesday of the following week. So you can always uh, find them there as well. So just so you are aware of that. So, the baptized imagination, cultivating something of great constancy. As we get started here, there's a couple things I want to very briefly recap um, and have, have clear. The first thing is what the imagination is. What are we talking about? Um, kind of basically and. I gave two whole lectures about this, so this is going to be very probably insufficient recap. But to start with, I just want to have on the table that imagination isn't just our ability to make stuff up, uh, stuff that's not real. Um, More, it's something more, something deeper. Let's say it that way than that. Um, It's what we can call our integrative faculty. It's the thing that integrates stuff, um, especially because we're getting data thrown at us all the time. Our imagination is what makes sense of that data. Um, it makes sense of, it kind of pulls out the whole from what could would rather be pretty random experiences. Um, and another way to talk about this is, uh, like C.S. Lewis did, he called it the organ of meaning. So an organ, just like you have a liver or kidney or whatever, our imagination is the organ of Meaning, it's what um, we make meaning with. And so so rather than being opposed to our reason and our intellect, like it often is kind of when it's talked about, imagination is actually what allows our reason to sort through data and then make the connections that allow us to act reasonably. <laughs> um, so George MacDonald, who is a, was a huge influence on C.S. Lewis and, and talked a lot about the imagination. He said it like this. He said, the intellect must labor, workmanlike, under the direction of the architect imagination. So they need to actually work together for us to have meaning and to um, kind of exist in the way that we think in the world. Um, so this is really important for us to have on the table because I don't want us getting confused with what what older writers called fancy, what in the series I've called fantasy, just sort of the ability to invent things that are, you know, maybe fun but not real and just kind of made up. The other piece that I want to make sure is on the table is that um, as I've approached this topic, I'm not really thinking of people 
who think of themselves as creative as my main audience. So, because sometimes people are like, of course, creatives are imaginative, and the rest of us are just normal, um, <laughs> or whatever. Um, and what I've what I've been attempting to show is that everybody has one. Everybody has an imagination, whether we think we do or not, and that that imagination is a really significant aspect of the image of God in each of us. Um, so, this is a real, real quick just putting a couple things on the table um, for us to kind of work with, to start with. So what, how I want to really start <laughs> is by giving a shout-out to my friend, to a number of us, our friend, Chris Peters. Oh, come on, you can do better than that. <laughs> Chris, so Chris is a recurring visitor at this, at this branch of Labrie, and he's been following the series on our podcast, and, and he and I have been talking about it, and he's really helped me think a little bit about kind of where where to take this. Um, if you ever get the chance to meet, them, meet him, he's actually someone who uses his imagination really well to ask really good questions. Um, yeah. So he sent me this massive email with questions and thoughts on this topic, and two of his questions are kind of what I want to summarize as, as our jumping off point tonight. So the first one is, how do we use our imagination and not lose the forest for the trees? So in churches or in the world around us, we see people, and maybe we are people, who get very focused on one thing to the exclusion of many other things that are important and real. Um, maybe in a church it could be a particular doctrine that's always foregrounded. Um, maybe it's a certain political viewpoint that sort of colors everything. Um, and, and that's not necessarily always bad but it can lead to a kind of myopia, right? A, a distorted picture of reality. Um, and I think as we're, we're all familiar with and ex- have experienced in our culture and our world, it can lead to really serious division and, and even the inability to talk across differences. Um, so how can imagination, our integrative faculty, help us avoid that conundrum? And then the second question that Chris asked that was really helpful was, if we are using our imaginations, how do we keep from getting airy-fairy, in Chris's words, sailing into new agey waters? Um, How do we avoid that and, and not, you know, just rely on emotion and intuition um, rather than maybe, you know, relying on scripture as authoritative? Um, How do we keep, keep from going off the deep end, as it were. So those those two questions are huge <laughs> and might have might seem like they don't really have anything to do with each other, but I think there's a way to get at them uh, that that kind of brings them together and also helps us think more about what what imagination is, what is imagination for life, which is really what I'm trying to look at with this whole series. Imagination isn't just for writing a fun, cute story. It's for life. Um, so here are two things that we're going to talk about tonight. This is, this, is, this is a tall order, but we're going to do it. First, imagination against reductionism. And second, the baptized imagination and story. Um, yes, this is going to be one lecture. It's going to be about an hour, I promise. Um so, so the way this, this is going to look outlined for you is first, I'm going to talk about imagination against reductionism. What is a person? 
Two, story. What story am I in? Three, imagination against reductionism again. If not formal obedience to power, then what? And four, story. How do I get the story into me? And then we'll conclude. Um, don't don't be overwhelmed. This is this is how we're gonna we're gonna go gonna alternate between these two sort of big ideas. Another thing I want to note, and maybe you gathered it from from the PowerPoint up here, uh, is that I'm I found using the metaphor of drama of theater really helpful in thinking about imagination. And in in, in fact, if I was going to retitle this lecture even though it already has a quote from Shakespeare in the title, I think I'd just call it The Play's the Thing. The Play's the Thing. We're talking about story, and I think plays or dramas are the most helpful mode of story to use as a metaphor for talking about this, rather than a novel or a movie, um, for a number of different reasons that I think will become clear, but partly because drama's rehearsed, and it involves all of our senses in real time. Um, and it's... It's one of our oldest forms of storytelling as humans. Uh, novels rise pretty much at the same time as modernism, which is significant and important. We can talk more about that later. Um, and so I, I wanted to go with something that was pre-modern, which drama is. Um, so anyway, that was just a side note for the metaphor that I'm going to be using for a lot of examples. So first of all, imagination against reductionism, what is a person? This is just like one of the biggest questions of philosophy ever, but we're going to talk about it a little bit. What is the core of a person? Like, how do we fill in the blank? I blank, therefore I am. Um, and the thing that I hope, I, I know this has been the true for me and for those of you who have been following this series, if, if the study of imagination has shown you anything, I hope it's shown that to have a true understanding of what a person is, we can't just reduce them to one thing. Um, a human being is not just a mind. A human being is not just biology um, or, or just their emotions, right? And our, our lecturer last week actually really helpfully pointed out, and some of you will remember, that the Bible uses the language of the heart to talk about the core of a person. And by the heart, it doesn't mean like we usually do our emotions. It means all of a person, reason, experience and memory, intuition, emotions, will, desires, even our guts. It's like connected to our bodies. Um, and so, yeah, so imagination helps us think about this in a non-reductive way, I think. Um, we'll get to that. So in the, in the last lecture that I gave on this topic, I used a passage from Shakespeare um, where Shakespeare, I think, is giving actually an amazing apologetic for the imagination, but he puts it in the mouth of this character named Theseus who is dismissing imagination as a way of knowing truth. And this is how Theseus starts his speech. He says, Lovers and madmen have such seething brains, such shaping fantasies that apprehend more than cool reason ever comprehends. The lunatic, the lover, and the poet are of imagination all compact. Um, so this, Theseus, is, he's talking to his brand new bride, Hippolyta. They're talking about this strange report that these four young people have brought back. These four young people have been cavorting in the woods all night. It's been crazy. Fairies, magic flowers, weird, weird stuff. Um, and Theseus says that their story is more strange than true. 
Theseus is the man with cool reason. He's a cool dude with cool reason. And he's going to explain away the poet's art. He's going to bundle it up with lovers who are blind. We know love is blind. And madmen are full of nonsense. So he's going to bundle that all together and distance himself from it. The lunatic, the lover, and the poet are all of imagination, are of imagination all compact. And I am none of those three things. Which by the way, is it pretty troubling because he's saying this to his brand new bride. I'm not a lover. (laughs) Um, Which is true, actually. He's not. Um, But I think what I've attempted to show in this series is that we human beings are actually more of imagination, all compact, compounded, than we often think. Um, I think we also have more of the lunatic and more of the lover and more of the poet in us than we realize as well. I mean, if we think about it this way, we often behave irrationally or non-rationally. We behave out of our phobias or our peculiar non-rational preferences. Like, I really like marshmallows, and so I eat them. There's no good reason for that. Um, We are motivated most deeply not by what we think, but actually what we value, what we desire, what we love. And, like... We've started to say here, we're storytellers, we're poets, we're meaning makers. Um, And yes, we have reason too, but there's a lot more to a human being than cool reason. Um, Maybe imagination helps us reconcile these things and say something like, maybe we are lovers and poets and madmen and reasoners. Um, And the imagination is what helps us reconcile and make meaning out of all of the ways of experiencing all those ways of experiencing the world um but this isn't just like easy um like like all the rest of our faculties our imagination is fallen and just like all of our faculties just like how the bible talks about our hearts it needs to be remade so that's definitely there as well so being a person is complex you might have noticed it's hard work to be a person (laughs) um Yeah, so um, I think practically we as humans actually do resist being reduced to just brains quite a lot, whether we think we do or not. And one of the ways we we resist this reduction is by the ways that we make meaning. We can't help it. We do it all the time. Um, We're always interpreting our experiences so that they mean something. Um, And that's using our imaginations. Um, and the main way that we make meaning is we tell stories. We narrate about things. So if you've come, if you come to stay at Labrie, uh, a very common first question, which is, is very intense, uh, we get it, is, so what's your story? Um, where have you come from and where are you going? What are you doing here? Do you know? <laughs> how do you tell the story of how you got here? Um, yeah, so in um, in this book that I'm drawing on quite a lot, whether I'm directly citing it or not, this is informing a lot of my thought here. Um, this is a book by James K. A. Smith called You Are What You Love. Um, and he, he says this. He says, to be a human is to be on a quest. To live is to be embarked on a kind of unconscious journey towards the destination of your dreams. And the way he's talking there about human life is in terms of a story, a quest or a journey has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the end is actually quite partic- particularly important because that's 
often what interprets the whole rest of it. And this is, this is how we talk about life. This is how we make sense of life. You'll hear it all the time. If someone says something like, so what I learned from that was, fill in the blank, at the end of an anecdote about their life, that's drawing out the moral of the story. They're making meaning out of what might seem like a random occurrence. Um, and this is imagination at work. And what I mean by that is not that the lesson they learned is not is not real um, or just made up or just kind of like subjective with no connection to reality. Um, making meaning through story is what we do, and I strongly believe that meaning is there to be made. Um, actually, things do mean stuff. <laughs> Our experiences do have meaning. Um, So the way we come at life, we're always already making something with the raw material that is our lives when we organize them as stories. But if we think about this seriously, um, I think we will have to admit that our lives aren't just like blank canvases for us to make whatever picture we want. Um, our, our stories don't start or end with, with just us. We didn't just pop out of nowhere. And um, So... We can't actually just make up the story. Um, it's not choose your own adventure. You can try. You can try that. And, and some people live quite successfully for a long time that way. But at some point, um, reality's going to hit back a little bit or a lot um, because we're already in a story. So that brings us to our first story question. What story am I in? <clears throat> And this, like what is a person, is one of the great questions of philosophy that people have spent generations trying to answer. It's, it's another way of asking, really, what is the good life, if, if you think of philosophy in that way. And if you haven't ever asked this question, what story am I in? If you don't take anything else away from tonight, that's your homework. Ask that question and think it through. Put your imagination to work. <clears throat> what story does the way you narrate your life tell um, in this book called the drama of Ephesians which sounds very niche in particular but it actually was really helpful in thinking about the imagination he has a uh, the author Timothy Gombus has a section called the imagination and its function in here and he offers some questions that can help us answer this question what story am I in he says all these things, our relationships, our history, location, our upbringing, etc. And many more go into shaping the way we conceive of the world and our place in it. What is it all about? What is the overarching logic that ties it all together? Which set of people are good and which are bad? Does the future look promising or threatening? My imagination informs how I behave towards others and sets before me a range of potential options for conduct in any situation. The way that you answer these questions is going to set up the story that you think you're in and the way that you act because of the story that you think you're in. Um, so there's really two questions here. What story do I think I'm in? What story does my behavior demonstrate that I think I'm in? And is that the story that I'm actually in? Is the story that I tell myself, that I situate myself in, the real story? Is it the true story? Um, obviously, I'm working from an assumption here, a huge assumption, which is that 
it isn't life isn't choose your own adventure, that there actually is a real true story. It's not just about finding your own story and your own truth. So if you have more questions about that, we can talk about that in the discussion. Um, but that's, that is an assumption I'm working from. And these are important questions for every, everyone to ask, whether you're a Christian or not. But if you are a Christian, you maybe are realizing that there is a story that you're supposed to find yourself in. Um, there's a right answer here. And the question is, what is, is that the story that you act like you're in? So we're going to talk for a minute about this story. This is the story that I'm assuming is the story. Um, there's lots of ways. There are lots of ways to summarize this story. Um, in shorthand, we sometimes call it the gospel. Um, or we might use categories like creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So those four four categories are kind of kind of summarize the story for us. The arc of the story goes this way, actually, not this way. This way. Creation, fall, redemption, re- restoration. Um, creeds that we recite help us sort of summarize the story. So here's here's my attempt using the Nicene Creed. God the Father Almighty created heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible. And it was very good. Human beings made a choice to reject that goodness and define good on their own terms. And the result was suffering pain, destruction, and death. So God, being rich in mercy, set out to redeem humanity to buy them back from the slavery into which they had sold themselves. That middle bit, that's not in the creed. That's all summed up in this next phrase, for us and for our salvation. (laughs) Jesus, the Son of God, very God of very God, true God, came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. This story, like all really good stories, actually resists summary. Um, Resists easy summary, anyway. And that's I think that's one reason the Bible is so long. And also why we see the same stories told again and again in different ways. Um, For the sake of this lecture, I'm going to use language that um, Gombus actually uses in the drama of Ephesians. He calls it God's drama of redemption. I think that's a really helpful title for this story. So in his book, um, Gombus makes the case that the book of Ephesians is designed to tell this story in a particular way so that the believers in Ephesus can find themselves in the story and be characterized, characterized, become the characters they're supposed to be within it. And he writes this. He says, A gospel-shaped imagination is necessary for the church to become a faithful and joyful cast of players and to effectively participate in God's drama of redemption. I think this is really helpful. I would expand this beyond the book of Ephesians. I think this is the story of the Bible. Um, the Bible isn't primarily a handbook of rules or a guide to life. It's the story of God's drama of redemption, and it characterizes us. It's designed to help us be characterized um, in that story. Um, The etymology of the word belief... 
what the history of it, where it comes from. It comes from the words that mean to hold dear, to desire, to trust, and to love. To believe, in that sense, is to love. So to believe the gospel, to believe the story of God's drama of redemption, isn't just to mentally assent to some propositions about who Jesus is. The New Testament authors never describe belief in this way. They talk about believing believing with your heart, with your whole core self, believing as loving, believing to live, to live out of that. Um, another way to talk about this is to say believing the gospel is about be- being brought into a story, into the story. So in um, in Shakespearean times, technically pre pre Shakespearean times, it shows up as a device in a couple of Shakespeare's plays. Um, acting troops would often mime out a summary of the play at the beginning, a summary of the plot before they performed the actual play. It was kind of like to give the audience a preview of what was about to happen, um, but it was not like a preview like we see in the movie theater. It was like preview with like all the spoilers. Like this is the whole story. This is what's going to happen. Um, but it was just mimed. They didn't talk. And so in this story, I mean, in the story, in the series, we're talking about the baptized imagination. Um, and in the very first lecture, I don't know if any of you remember this, but I said, if you have been baptized, do you realize that you are an actor? You have acted out, like millions of believers before you, the great drama of the reality of God's redemptive work. Your baptism is like that mimed plot summary at the beginning of the play. <laughs> Um, now the play is going to happen. <laughs> it's going to unfold in your life. It's unfolding across the history of the world. But that's the story of the rest of your life. Um, I, I, so I come from a Baptist, Baptist tradition, and I really appreciate total immersion. Um, because, partly because it's so dramatic. Um, it really dramatically acts out the story of what baptism is telling, which is dying with Christ, being buried under the water like he's bar- like Jesus was buried, and then rising again, sparkling and sputtering and awkward and like a brand new baby, kind of like, what just happened, um, into new life. And um, I think that's just, yeah, I think that's important to realize when we're talking about baptism, that's what we're talking about. That's the story that's being told. And, and obviously different traditions act this out in different ways. Um, when when I was growing up, I had a friend who was baptized in a river. And she went into the river wearing her oldest, grubbiest clothes. And then when she came out, like after the baptism was complete, she changed into new clothes and then she threw her old clothes downstream, like so they'd wash away downstream. Which I don't, that's not exactly environmentally friendly, but it was really powerful um, and really kind of embodied... Um, the way that the New Testament talks about believing um, what happens. I mean, the New Testament talks again and again about being clothed with Christ. Um, Yeah, there's all kinds of metaphors that are used. All that to say, if you've been baptized, that's your story. That's the story that you're in. And so the question is, the one that I asked earlier, is that is the way that I live show that that's, does the way that I live show that that's the story that I'm in? And that's the problem, right? 
The problem is that just knowing the story doesn't mean that it's the story that characterizes us necessarily. I think very often we um, we act out what's supposed to be the mimed summary of the rest of the story. The intro, we say we believe, we're baptized, and then we go on to perform an entirely different story. Um, or at least major parts of our life lives are performing an entirely different story. It's like if we were watching this play and this guy showed up. No, you can't really see him. He's like a weird guy on a scooter. Uh, and he's confused. Um, because a weird guy with a messenger bag on a scooter doesn't belong in King Lear, which is the play that's demonstrated here. <clears throat> and there's lots of reasons for this disconnect, right? The cultures, the cultures around us, they're constantly bombarding us with rival stories, with rival roles to play. Probably the most easily accessible one or, that we think of is the role of consumer. I mean, we just watched the Super Bowl. It's for the ads, right? That's why people watch the Super Bowl. Maybe maybe for the sports, too. I don't know. But um, all any advertising is trying to characterize you as a particular kind of person, which is someone who buys stuff, someone who has money who buys stuff, um, a consumer and a customer. But there's other roles, too. Maybe um, we're offered the role or slotted into the role of a rat in the rat race or of a goody two-shoes or of a bad boy, or a victim, or a soccer mom, or a damsel in distress waiting for Prince Charming. And we slot into these roles not because we one day was like one one day woke up and rationally decided, I'm going to be X in this story. It's because our imaginations have been played on. Um, and we just slot into them uh, without really thinking it through. Timothy Gombus says it like this. He says, it's not really true to say our imaginations die or that we lose the capacity to imagine. It's more accurate to say that our imaginations become captive. We do not lose the ability to imagine, but we become tired and surrender our imaginations. We reduce ourselves and we are reduced from the amazing new creations, the glorious sub-creators, as Tolkien puts it, Uh, that we were made to be, living out God's redemptive story in our lives creatively and lovingly, and we become static, maybe like Theseus, who we quoted earlier, maybe satisfied with just consuming the rival stories that our culture offers us, maybe stuck in familiar and safe legalistic ruts. If I check these boxes, I'll be good and I'll be fine. Or maybe we just get fixated on one aspect of the story losing the forest for the trees maybe we just focus on one thing total depravity or God's sovereignty or maybe a particular gift of the Holy Spirit these are very common ones that show up we lose the forest for the trees or we lose the forest for a shopping mall parking lot So what I'm getting at here is it's not enough for us to know what story we're in. We also need to get the story into us somehow. And sometimes we think the solution to this problem is to impose rules on ourselves or on our communities to make us look like the characters that we're supposed to be playing in the story. 
put his cape on this scooter guy and we'll be good. He'll be good. He'll just blend right in. It'll be fine. Um, we think the so we think the solution is rules and information. Um, but that's actually not taking seriously or realistically what people are and how we're actually made made to live. So we're back at imagination against reductionism. If not formal obedience to power, then what? This quote I will explain. Don't don't panic. The heart, the core of our being, is formed by story, not simply by propositions or ideas. And if we are made to be creative and our medium is life, see part two if you're... (laughs) baffled by that but if we're made to be creative and our medium is life then we need to learn our art and since we're using this metaphor of drama we need to learn our art by heart you can you can study all the acting theory that you want you can wear the costumes you can get on the stage those are all really good and important things um but skill as an actor is formed through practice through rehearsal through knowing the story of the play so well that even if you forget the exact line, what comes out of your mouth is something that the character would say. And the performance remains consistent and believable. Someone in the audience might not even notice. <clears throat> in um, You Are What You Love, uh, James K. Smith basically, basically spends his whole life, his whole book, his whole life, his whole book talking about this, this very thing. Um, so if, if this is something that you want to look at more, I really do commend this book to you. You are what you love. Um, but he says this. He says, we can't recalibrate our heart from the top down through merely informational measures. The orientation of the heart happens from the bottom up through the formation of our habits of desire. And then he goes on to talk about what does that mean? What does that mean, formation of the habit of our habits of desire? And he describes this, he talks about this in through what we might call virtue formation. And I'm going to read you a little bit of a longer passage, and I'll put it up here too as well, about what he says about virtues. Virtues are good moral habits. Good moral habits are like internal dispositions to the good. They are character traits that become woven into who you are so that you are the kind of, a, kind of person who is inclined to be compassionate, forgiving, and so forth. Virtues thus are different from moral laws or rules, which are external stipulations of the good. In fact, there is an inversely proportionate relationship between virtue and the law. The more virtuous someone is, that is, the more they have an internal disposition to the good that bubbles up from their very character, the less they need the external force of the law to compel them to do the good. So in part two of, of this series, I referenced a quote from the Russian philosopher Berdyaev that Dorothy Sayers uses in her book, The Mind of the Maker. And that's where this question that we're asking right now comes from. Um, she, she puts in this quote. She says, God created man in her own image. Sorry. God created man in his own image and likeness, i.e. made him a creator too, calling him to free spontaneous activity and not to formal obedience to his power. And I think this is what Smith is talking about when he talks about virtue and that that inverse 
relationship between virtue and the law. The more that it's an internal disposition to the good, the less you need external imposition of the good. Um, Yeah, so the more that we have God's true story of redemption in us, characterizing us, making us the characters that we are meant to be, the less we need to be controlled by legalism. And so the more free we are, actually. And freedom, but, but freedom for the, for the Christian and, and actually for the artist too. If you are an artist, um, you will understand this, I think. It doesn't just mean doing whatever you want. Freedom means being able to do what you were made for, being able to always choose the good. Um, that's really important to recognize that, yeah, freedom doesn't just mean choose your own adventure. Um, later on in the mind of the maker, Sayers says, the business of the creator, if we are creators made in the image of God, the business of the creator is not to escape from his material medium or to bully it, but to serve it. But to serve it, he must love it. I had a, I had a choir director, um, who would say something like this. He would say, great, you are all singing it absolutely correctly. Every note is right. But what are you singing? Think about these words. Think about where you're going to be singing this. This was a church choir singing um, in the context of corporate worship. You know, think about that. And then we'd sing it again. And he would say, yes, yes, now you're being artistic. Technical correctness is very important. It's, it's arguably how an artist serves their medium. Um, but there's a difference between technical excellence and virtu- virtuosity. And there's a reason virtuoso and virtue come from the same place. Um, a virtuoso is someone who has virtue. They have great technical skill. They serve the medium. And they love it. And they're totally free in the way that they play. It's the sense of freedom of being able to always choose the good, always choose the right note. I mean, if you watch, watch, I don't know, some virtuoso, I just... It's Ak Perlman on the violin or Yuja Wong on the piano. Like, watch them play. They're so good. They're having a great time. There's not like a split between technical excellence and great joy. And that's this is what creative, free, spontaneous activity looks like in service to the medium. I don't know how to describe it. Just go watch. Go watch them. <laughs> go watch a virtuoso and think about what that means. So, um, what does the Bible say about this? The book of Galatians talks about it this way. Paul writes this. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. So, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And these fruits of the Spirit are virtues. It's also really important, I don't want to overlook this at all, that these are fruits of the Spirit. There's someone else working here. The Spirit is working here. Um, And it's really interesting that these fruits are contrasted earlier in part of the passage I don't have up here to the acts of the flesh. It's acts versus fruits. 
fruits grow up and out of a particular kind of tree that's rooted in particular soil. Um, virtues grow out are grown by the spirit in us out of the story that we're rooted in. So we need to grow in virtue. We need to get the story into us. I'm going to head into our last section here. How do I get the story into me? What story am I in, but how do I get the story into me? Um, and I've got three kind of areas that I'm going to talk about, and then I hope in the discussion we can talk about some like particular practicalities of what this could look like. So the first one is know and tell the story multimodally, <laughs> multimodally, a mouthful, but um, it's the word that, that, I, that fit. Um, I mentioned earlier that I've been really enjoying this metaphor of drama, and, and partly I find it fruitful because a play is multisensory, like we talked about. And I'm not talking about like a minimal, minimalist, modernist monologue of like one person on a black stage. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a show, a big show. Um, my kind of play. Um, and a play obviously involves a script and characters, like what you would read if you were just reading a play from a book of plays. Um, but that's a totally different experience than watching a play when you've got the costumes and the lights and the sound and the music and you see the movement happening. It's also a totally different experience from being in a play where you're moving and dancing and singing and whatever. And it's all alive and happening in front of you in real time. And that's sort of what I'm getting at when I talk about multimodally. Um, this is like a pedagogical word. In If you're learning to be a teacher, sometimes you'll hear this. And it's talking about it's important to learn things in different ways. You probably all experienced this when you were in school. If you think about the classes from school that you remember the best, maybe the lessons that you feel like maybe became a part of you, got into you somehow, the chances are there was probably more than one sense involved. So you maybe did, you know, listen and take notes, kind of traditional way of learning something in a classroom. But you probably also had images to work with, or maybe you had to make your own images or produce something creative. Maybe you had to do something with your with your body. Similarly, think about think about the stories that you've known since childhood that are like in you somewhere deep. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one. But if you if you were like me, you didn't just read these stories or have them read to you. But you also looked at the pictures. You poured over those pictures. Or if there weren't pictures, you drew your own pictures for the story. Um, and maybe you dressed up like the characters and then acted out your favorite scenes or made up new scenes. Um, that's how the story got into you, through all of those different ways. I, I know King Lear not just because I've read it a number of times and because I've written about it and watched it performed, but also because my literature professor had us act out scenes in the parking lot with McDonald's ketchup packets for blood. <laughs> It was amazing <laughs> and messy. So do we know and tell the story, the story, capital S story, the true story that we're in multimodally? Um, and this is really a call to creative work. How can we retell the story using our, our talents and our skills, the modes that are available to us, the medium of our lives? And if you are... Um, 
an artist, obviously this is maybe even sparking ideas in you or it's something that you do already. But even if you don't see yourself as an artist, how do you tell the story over in the ways that you tidy a room, the way that you raise your children, the way that you plant a garden, the way that you do your job? I can't answer that question for you. (laughs) You have to use your imagination. Um, The story... The story is told, the story that we think we're in, is, is told by the pictures that recur in your mind's eye, or the music that gets stuck in your head, or the people that you think of as your models and your heroes, like Dick talks about. It's told by the way that we speak. And these things, all those things reveal the story that we think we're in. Um, and, and they're worth interrogating a little bit, I think. Um, and I, I, I do want to be clear that I don't mean that we just need to make sure like there's no R-rated movie scenes in my mental images or there's only Christian music or there's only Bible characters. That's not what I mean. <clears throat> God's true story of redemption is the story of the world and it's it's to, pieces of it are to be found everywhere. Um, but this, what I'm trying to describe here is something that works recursively. It's sort of like a chicken and egg kind of thing. We get the story into us multimodally and the things that we experience multimodally get the story into us. Does that make sense? Both ways. Um, that's worth attending to, I think. We have choices to make about what we feed our hearts with. Um, and it's going to tell a story. Those things are going to tell a story. Second, tell the story, the story if the story of God's great big story of redemption is the story that we're in, then we need to tell this story over and over again. <clears throat> we get a story into us by rehearsing it. Um, I thought it was really interesting to read the baptism rite for the Church of England. The priest begins with a prayer that doesn't doesn't start with the person who's being baptized. It doesn't even start with Jesus. It goes all the way back to Genesis, to Noah's Ark. And then it goes to Exodus and talks about the Red Sea. And then it talks about Jesus' baptism. And then it talks about the the baptism about to happen. So the person being baptized is situated in a story. They're told what story they're a part of. Um, But the priest is also praying for God to put that story into them. And the way that God does this so often, we see this in scripture over and over, is he gives us opportunities to tell the story again and again. Um, in pedagogy and learning, especially in classical education, memory and practice are super important. You memorize tons of stuff if you're in a classical school. Um, and stories get into us through repetition and through habit and, and practice. Uh, Smith talks about this in, by talking in terms of liturgies, whether they're talk, called that um, formally or not. Liturgies, repeated practices, um, is how we're shaped. And he talks about it like this. He says, liturgies work effectively and aesthetically. They grab hold of our guts through the power of image, story, and metaphor. They speak to our senses. They get under our skin. The way to the heart is through the body and through rehearsing. An actor memorizes her lines. 
she can do that on her own. But she has to practice her cues over and over. The cast has to block out where to move precisely so that everyone hits their marks at the right spot. Rehearsals are really essential. Throughout, throughout his book, You Are What You Love, Smith says, what you do does something to you. So our habits, even our unconscious ones, are forming us. And they get a, a story into us. And is it the story? Jesus knew that we needed rehearsals. This is why the sacraments are the way that they are. They aren't just things that you say. They're things that you do regularly with your whole body. Um, communion is a chance to tell the story again. Tell it again, tell it again. Act it out again and again. And communion, I think, is a, a really good example that segues beautifully into the third area here, which is tell the story all together. God's drama of redemption gets us into a community. Sorry, I said that the wrong way. God's drama of redemption gets into us in community. It also gets us into a community, but that's another another point. Um, <laughs> so we've already we've talked a little bit. I've already talked a little bit about worship, about liturgy. Yes, we can worship individually. We can have our own private, ordinary, at home liturgies and practices. We've got a book that lots of people read when they come here called Liturgy of the Ordinary, which is an excellent book. Um, But the, the drama that we enact in miniature in our baptism isn't just our own private drama. It's the drama of God and his people across time. Our corporate worship with God's people isn't just what Christians do. Christians go to church on Sunday, and that's what they do. It's actually vital to the formation of our imagination so that we live in the story and let the story live in us. Um, Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace or with gratitude in your hearts to God. How does the word of Christ, the story of Christ, dwell in us? It's when we teach and admonish each other through our corporate singing, which is not how we usually think about corporate singing. Um, at least not in a lot of the traditions I've been a part of or churches I've been a part of. So notice in this verse, singing isn't just praise directed towards God, though that is good, important. And it's not it's also not primarily expressive, me just telling God how I feel about him. Here in Colossians, corporate singing is formative. It's for each other. It's to teach and admonish each other, even. That's a strong word, admonish. It's for getting the story into us. It's for correcting us when we start drifting off into other stories that aren't true or aren't big enough for reality. <laughs> Baptism is, a, is, a, is an initiation into a people. That's one way of describing it. Um, and in, in a lot of traditional baptism rites, the person being baptized has to have people with them. So if they're an infant, they have to have at least three godparents, uh, according to the Book of Common Prayer. They have to, it's very particular. You have, they have to have two of their own sex and one of the opposite, at least. Um, if someone of riper years, as the Book of Common Prayer puts it, is getting baptized, um, <laughs> they have to have at least two, uh, at least two sponsors. And the job of these sponsors, according to this rite, 
to the right is to call upon them, the baptismal candidate, to use all diligence to be rightly instructed in God's holy word so that they may grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and live godly, righteously, and soberly in this present world. And I think whatever your baptismal tradition is, this is really instructive to us. We get get the story into us by having mentors and sponsors and people we live with who will call upon us to live out the story of God's word and whom we can call upon. The the baptism rite also calls on the whole congregation. Uh, if you've been baptized, you've been initiated into a people. And this isn't a, pe- a people in the abstract, though, of course, we are part of the communion of saints, global church, past, present, future. That's true. Part of cultivating the imagination is not leaving things in the abstract. Um, that's really essential, actually. And so um, I'm going to be really blunt. If you're a Christian, you need to be in a local church. And if you're not sure how to find a local church, or if you're not sure what you should be looking for, this is a great question to ask. Do they tell the story, the whole story of God's redemption? And not just do they tell it, tell it in words from the pulpit, but do they tell it in their liturgies of worship Do they tell it in the songs that they sing? Do they tell it in the way that they welcome people? Do they tell it in the way they talk about other churches and other groups of people? In other words, do they tell it multimodally? Do they tell it over and over again? Do they tell it all together? I've I've said in this series before that love (laughs) is an act of endless imagination. What does it look like in real time when action is required to love your neighbor as yourself? Look at the person next to you right now. Your real, actual neighbor. We're not talking about the neighborhood of mankind or something like that. I don't know what that means. Um, The real neighbors who sleep in your dorm room, who take too long in the bathroom, who have the next desk at work, who are behind you in line at the grocery store in front of you and have five million things and can't find their checkbook, whatever. Those neighbors. Um, Cultivating the imagination to love well takes work and it takes practice, it takes training, just like all of the virtues do. Oh, I don't have it on here. I just have to read it to you from here. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. When the New Testament uses this language of one another, it's talking about the church. It's talking about God's family and God's people. Corporate worship, meeting together, worshiping together, encouraging one another. This is where that considering how we may spur when cultivate love and good deeds happens. This is where it happens. We do this considering together. God's great big redemption story is not a one man or one woman show. It's not even a two man show. Me and Jesus starring me and Jesus. Um, It's a show with an ensemble cast and we learn the story that we're in and we get that story into us by participating in that ensemble. All right. 
Let's wrap this up. In a good play, everything matters. Every detail contributes to the whole, and the play emerges, it's a good play, it emerges as something with an integrity, something that holds together. Like we've talked about, so often our lives seem to be haphazard, they're disintegrated. They lack integrity. As our integrative faculty, the baptized imagination can help reorient us so that we are characterized by the actual true story. The baptized imagination helps us get the story into us so that we know it inside and out, viscerally, which means literally with our guts, just as much as with our brains. And this this is how we grow in avoiding single focus on one thing, myopia, that fixation on one thing that is the only thing that gets foregrounded. And this is how we keep from drifting into new agey waters. Scripture isn't just authoritative because it gives us doctrines to assent to or because it tells us what to do, imposing external restraints on our behavior. It's authoritative because it is the true story of our lives because it's the only story that's big enough for reality. The play's the thing. <clears throat> Knowing the story like this reorients us to the end of the story. And Ephesians says it like this, when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. The end, when all things are finally reconciled to Christ, to God in Christ, finally reintegrated and rightly ordered. When we inhabit the story, this story, when we are reintegrated by this story, the free spontaneous activity of that, of that quotation is possible. Love and service of the medium of life is possible. The opposite of formal obedience to power is not choose your own adventure. Formal, uh, free spontaneous activity still includes obedience. But when we're characterized by the story and by the God who it belongs to, we're set free to choose the good in response to his love. We're set free to be virtuosos, to be artists in living. I'm going to end with these words from 1 Peter. These are words that have been chiming in my head throughout this process of thinking about what does it mean to be artists in living, to love and serve the medium of our lives. In 1 Peter 3, uh, Peter's quoting Psalm 34, and he says this, Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. This is the language of integrity, of truth, and of faithfulness. Whoever would love life and see good days must be faithful to the story. He must resist reductionism in favor of pursuing peace, which is shalom, wholeness, completeness. Peace as defined by God's great, big, good drama of redemption. This is the something of great constancy that I talked about in the title. And this is the work that our, our baptized imaginations are for.
going to end there. This was a lot. It was a fire hose. Um, I don't know if you felt like that. I felt like that, certainly, while writing it. Good grief. Um, here's just a few sources, if that's something that's helpful to you. Um, but now we can definitely move towards a time of conversation, of questions, um, discussion. If you think of of some of those, maybe practical ideas, what would this look like? Um, we can talk about that as well. Yeah, Lydia. I guess I'd be, um, one reaction I'm having to about this is just thinking about, especially in the past couple of years, the idea of story. I've been trying to use the idea of story to kind of help me, especially with suffering mm-hmm. and when things are very difficult. And I'd be kind of curious if it brings true to anybody else because I think often, like when I'm faced with something where something's gone wrong, either just something I don't want it to be the way I want it to be, or like something like I've seen someone I love hurt, or I've been hurt, or there's some kind of injustice. Mm-hmm. Like I'm realizing so much, like, there's so much of the, like, I want this fixed right now. Like, I want to, I find a way to get this fixed, mm-hmm. or I find a way to solve this problem. And like, the more I'm getting, I'm, the more I'm learning, like, obviously things don't get fixed the way you want them to. <laughs> they don't get fixed in the time you want them to. Mm-hmm. And and I I do I have been finding it or trying to find it a comfort like trying to find it as a way of coaching myself is to be like this this is not my story like I don't get to write the way I want this to end and ultimately like the story will be written far better than I can imagine mm-hmm. like and I and I love that idea of drama because like reinterpreting to is like oh this is just a scene like mm-hmm. sometimes it feels like if you hit something that's difficult you're like oh this is the end. Like, mm-hmm. everything I planned just fell apart. This is the end. But then, like, no, this is this is just a scene, and maybe this scene has to end discordantly for something else. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe it has to, it works into the play in a different way that you can't see yet. It's all going to come together in the end. And you can wait. You can wait to see how it, like, you can, you can show that patience. You can show that faithfulness because you can be like, wait, I know, I know something else is coming. I know something else will. Like I, I know there's a there's a story writer behind this, there's a playwright who's mm-hmm. going to write something far better than I can imagine, and like that kind of like humbleness to be like, okay, let's let's take this, like let's take where he's going, where God's going to take it, and, mm-hmm. and then you can kind of move forward and continue in the play. And I don't know, that's mm-hmm. it's something that I'm trying to think about, but I don't know if that kind of brings to what anybody else is thinking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. Thank you for sharing that. That's really good. Yeah, Marty, do you have a... Yeah, um, one of the things I've been really... We've been dealing with some suffering issues in our family. And one of the things I've been so thankful for is the big story includes the story of the fall. Mm-hmm. And and so seeing our seeing our stories in light of the, the big story you talked about, it is creation... Mm-hmm. Fall, brokenness, mm-hmm. redemption, future glory, I find incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. And that's been drummed into us through Francis Schaeffer's teaching, <laughs> the space-time fall in history, 
um, you know, for many, many years. It's also drummed into us by our black pastor in our black church, who speaks frequently about the, the brokenness, the fall, and, and the perniciousness of the health and wealth gospel, the idea that bad things never happen to good people. That is a pernicious teaching. It's nothing to do with the Bible mm-hmm. story mm-hmm. or reality. Um, bad things happen to all kinds of people, including mm-hmm. very godly people. <laughs> we don't always understand why, and and but it, it's having that framework of the big story. We mm-hmm. are in a broken world. We're, mm-hmm. as Dick's lectures, living in the shadow of the fall. We have to learn how to live in the shadow of the fall with the hope of glory mm-hmm. and with trusting, as you said, trusting God's God's particular story for me. Mm-hmm. But the background of that big story, I find incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think about you mentioning in song how we remind ourselves of that. You know, mm-hmm. and there's so many songs um, that I've noticed where they they say, I know it's not the end because it's not good. Mm-hmm. And and the story we're in does have a great ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and that so mm-hmm. that does help you with the suffering to know that it is a scene, mm-hmm. it is a chapter or whatever and mm-hmm. Yeah. That both of those things are true, right? Like um, we can find comfort in knowing that it's not the end, but also fully admit this is horrible Mm -hmm. this is awful this is not how it was supposed to be the fall is real and it's real right now in this awful circumstance in my life in this awful way I'm being treated whatever Um, both of those things are true and I think that this is something I didn't fit into this lecture but that's part of imagination against reductionism is that it helps us say and there instead of being like but how this, like, how can these both be true? It helps us hold paradoxes like that. Um, yeah. I don't know how it does that, but it does. <laughs> yeah, Lenny? This makes me think about um, how Tolkien talks about the great story, mm-hmm. our lives as a story, and the wonderful term that he uses of the eucatastrophe. Mm-hmm. The final joyous turn mm-hmm. that that yeah there's catastrophe and there's going to be catastrophe but there is also going to be a new catastrophe mm-hmm. in which everything will be turned into mm-hmm. something that, mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. good and and it all gives there was purpose and meaning to everything that came before because of this final joyous turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I corrected myself earlier in the lecture. Um, when I was in, like, fifth grade, we had this, like, plot map. This is how you, this is a story. It's, yeah. you know, rising action, mm-hmm. climax, falling action, or there's conflict somewhere in there. Climax, <laughs> falling action. And this is the shape, right? Like a yeah, right. upside-down U. Mm-hmm. But that's actually not the shape of the big story. It's like, this way. <laughs> it's a U. Um, yeah. Um, it's falling acts of action. <laughs> the climax and the rising action. Yeah, Marissa. Um, just, I, I see the same pattern in music too. For a song to really, or a, a piece, um, whether it be a sweet or a sonata, or, um, 
what have you. Um, for it to really work, there has to be tension mm -hmm. at some point. There has to be discord there has to it has to not make sense for that it to them make sense mm -hmm. but I um, I think we need to be careful not to think that um, the suffering in the story is just for the sake of the story because the author of life has a purpose for that discord for that suffering it's not um, just for the sake of it to look better in the end either it's mm -hmm. a formative part. It's part of the story. Yeah. Um, an integral part of the story, whether mm -hmm. we may like it or not. Mm -hmm. um, and I also <coughs> want to point out that these patterns that we see just like it just really shows me how art is not just a way of worshiping God. It's a reflection of God. Mm -hmm. It's and and being a part of the art is just mind-boggling. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not um, like, oh, I'm creative and John's not, <laughs> you know, um, and we're, we're just like different kinds of Christians or whatever. It's um, really that we are a part of the art. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah really great. Thank you. That's really good to hear what you said. Um, I was really struck by the comparison between reductionism and shalom. I've never mm -hmm. thought to put those two in direct opposition to mm -hmm. each other. Um, but I think you're saying that like reductionism strikes at shalom. Mm -hmm. you know, I just wonder if you'd have any more, if you'd have anything more that you had wanted to share that you <laughs> would share, or any more thoughts on that, just to round that mm -hmm. out. It really, really struck me. I'd mm -hmm. like to know more about it. Me too. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think thinking about thinking about shalom as wholeness and then reductionism as obviously just taking apart. That's, I mean, the most basic, like what I was getting at there. Um, but yeah, I would have to think about that more too. Um, I think in some ways it does because it it's. One of the things I didn't talk about uh, in the lecture itself was is thinking about reductionism as synonymous with, similar to, whatever, idolatry. Um, you know, idolatry. You know, in the Old Testament is saying like we can't really handle this God that's on top of the mountain, so we're going to make a calf because we can. That's like we'll reduce it, reduce God down to this image that we can carry around. It's portable. It's safe. Um, and I think we do that, we reduce people in that way too, um, by, by caricaturing or cartooning kind of real, real whole people. Um, and I think, so I think in those ways, then you can see that it is, it is against shalom and flourishing and wholeness and completeness. Um, yeah, so those are a few of my thoughts, definitely more thinking to be done there. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think we're surrounded with reductionist models mm -hmm. of how to understand ourselves. And you are understood economically. Mm -hmm. You are a player economically, whether it's uh, you being big in your in your power, economic power, in your, in your possessions, or, or whether it's you, uh, you as a consumer 
and, and so it's a huge way that we're reduced to to economic reality and all its tentacles reaching out. Or psychology, that the whole therapeutic society we're living in reduces us to, to self-esteem, mm-hmm. to, to psychological reality. So all kinds of different... Mm-hmm. Uh, the academic world has its own reductionism, uh, reductionisms mm-hmm. to reduce us down. And the, the, uh, both the idea of the image of being the image of God and in the big story just defies all those reductionisms. Mm-hmm. But we need to be just aware somehow of this and, and where they're pushing on us and where the church has collapsed uh, and given way to them. Mm-hmm. I had another thought on a little bit off this, mm-hmm. this trend, but, but it, it strikes me having worked a lot on heroism. Mm-hmm. The whole New Testament community is a community of imitation. Mm-hmm. Paul does it, makes a huge effort to... He doesn't just... Mention Epaphroditus, but mentions what an awesome guy Epaphroditus is <laughs> in, in Philippians mm-hmm. and Timothy as well. Mm-hmm. Never seen anyone like her. Phoebe going to Rome. She's just, it's not just watch out for her, she's coming. She's really a strong person, and so I expect you mm-hmm. to really treat her well. And same with Philemon. You know, he's, 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 uh, every, the, the big theme is, of course, the imitation of Christ. But it's the imitation of those who are Christ-like as mm-hmm. well, who are minimal heroes or, or little heroes, but 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 uh, in whose lives we can see. And I think a, a big part of to, to me is how to get the story into me mm-hmm. is to watch each other, yeah, and look and see when you see Christ-like in each other, mm-hmm. Christ-likeness in each other, yeah, and note it, write it down, uh, pr- praise it, Thanks the person. You know, <laughs> and so on. Yeah. yeah. So the, so there's a lot just in our in our personal interaction, I think, that gets... This, to me, is a huge point, the idea of how to get it into me, mm-hmm. you know, because it's lovely as a theory up there. Yeah. And, and another thing, to have it really in our bones. Mm-hmm. So thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, and just following from that just struck me, actually encouraging each other. For example, when you see Christ-likeness in someone, mm-hmm. telling them, because that helps build in them the desire for more. Saying, mm-hmm. you really helped me in what you just said, or what you... Or your example, mm-hmm. or how I how I saw you handle that. That was really good, and that mm-hmm. makes goodness attractive to me. Mm-hmm. Makes me want to be more like you, insofar as you're like Christ. Mm-hmm. I think it's you know we, we can do a lot more of that of encouraging yeah. each other. Yeah, that's a really good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that idea. Um, I mean, Dick, you've done so much work on on heroism and idea of models and um, I think that's a really good question to ask when figuring out like do, what story do I think I'm in <laughs> what story am I putting myself in and is it the true story and is to think about like who who are my heroes actually um, and why why are those people in that seat in my life you know um, those are those are really hard questions to ask and good important ones to ask mm-hmm. yeah so um, just in a small group earlier this mm-hmm. week people were sharing about how, how they can like stand out in the world and she's like well everyone's miserable at work and I'm happy so they, <laughs> they must see Christ in me and I'm, I'm happy and they're miserable and I feel like that's the example we get a lot like just mm-hmm. happiness and I think 
I think the way like that I project Christ is that like I meet people where they're at. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, like in any given scene that we, that we're living out in our lives, it could be it could be success or it could be failure. It could be a tragedy. It could be a triumph. And so I I try to live my life in a way where I kind of like meet people with like where they're at. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I move around work miserable all the time. But, you know, like, I don't know. It's just it's funny now. It's, it's, it's kind of like this set way of doing things. You know, it's mm-hmm. not it's not always that we're going to be this like happy, jubilant person. You know, yeah. Because sometimes it's like there's reasons to be sad. Mm-hmm. Like oh, that person's genuine and like they're they're embracing reality as opposed to yeah. just medicating themselves. Right. Or Netflix or whatever. So mm-hmm. even that can entering into sadness when things are genuinely sad. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot about the talk you gave about the theology tears and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like if you're just happy all the time, are you telling the whole story? The story has the fall in it. Um, and that's that's important to recognize. And it, that plays out um you know, in miniature, if you want to say, over and over again, all the time throughout our lives. Yeah, Joshua. Uh, I just, uh, I, I think that I have a question. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed. I enjoyed this. It was like a fire hose, but mm-hmm. it was like a, a fire hose of like maple syrup. Just in your mouth. Oh, oh, perfect. Yeah. Really all right. No, I'm, uh, all right. Anyway, no, yeah. It was, yeah, it was good. I, I've really, I've, over the year, both through. Reading Gombus and then um, reading this other guy, Van Hooser, who also mm-hmm. works for the same image of drama. I found it helpful, maybe in a slightly different way than what you were talking about, Lydia, but like, um, and because, and maybe this is where it doesn't, the metaphor maybe breaks down, actually, too, at the same time, but because I do feel like um, there's, I'm presented so often with situations where I, like, I really don't. I was not like no, I was not prepared. I did not prepare myself mm-hmm. for knowing what to do in this situation when someone says something or does something or asks me to do something. And yeah, being able to instead of just like and I think so much of uh, what I thought about like the good life or ethics growing up was like it's right or wrong in every situation, mm-hmm. and you will know what to do. Mm-hmm. You, there are two ways before you, and I, I do think there are moments where there. You know, two ways, but so much is like improv, and like mm-hmm. people that know how to improv are are people who actually know the character. They're supposed to be like know the story and know how to take it from where it is, maybe to where it's going to go in like a believable mm-hmm. way. And I, I found that helpful because I, yeah, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure everyone who lives life. Uh, also, it's just confronted with, like, I don't know what to do in this moment, mm-hmm. but I have to act. Um, right. And, like, knowing, even, there's another philosopher who talks about, like, uh, before you can answer the question of what should I do, you need to in, you need to have already answered the previous question of what story am I a part of. Yeah. And, like, something about knowing the story <laughs> has been very helpful for me and like, what do I do in this moment, either with my children or with myself or in the three or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, I so I just really enjoyed and was very thankful for how you worked 
saying makes me think about where Gomez talks about kind of the way the story you're telling informs how I behave towards others and sets before me a range of potential options for conduct Mm -hmm. in any situation. So yeah, if you're put on that stage, this might this this is I've not thought through this illustration, but if you're put on that stage and you know these are the guys there, like this is the wrong way to show up. Like, you know, that's not one of the options. Um, but there are, there is a range of options. If you're like, okay, you're on, like, be in this play, you know. Um, the story that you're in, knowing the story that you're in, limits the potential options. Maybe it is just down to there's a right way and a wrong way, or maybe there's a range. Yeah. yeah. There's a great line, um, John Ames in Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, where he, he's, I'm going to butcher it, that he talks about. Because uh, Calvin says the world is a theater of God's glory. Um, and then John Ames is like, what if that meant like we were actors, and that like God took pleasure in our performance when we perform life well? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't know, that A was just just mm-hmm. sort of a different spin on on some of this too, but mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. Gilead's a good book. Should read it. Um, Amen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Ben. Um, there's a comment, uh, sort of a throwaway comment you said earlier, which I was just interested in. Um, you said you're talking about interpreting our lives as a story. Not even necessarily as being part of a larger story, but just that our lives are a story, um, and that we we tend to make meaning. We mm-hmm. we sort of need to make meaning out of out of story. Mm-hmm. Instead, the meaning is there to be made. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and I totally agree with that. <laughs> but it's just an interesting thing because it's because so many. Um, to so many people, and certainly this is kind of, sort of like the prevailing opinion within psychology and everything, that, that uh, there's even a field of psychology called like narrative psychology, which is basically studies how people have to um, kind of reinterpret all the things that have happened to them, which are basically nonsense, and, and, and make a story out of it in order to have meaning and not mm-hmm. go crazy. <laughs> it's basically... We need to think of our lives as a story, otherwise uh, we can't live them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but within that holy sort of secular sphere of thinking, it's something that we impose. Mm-hmm. It's something we pull out of thin air. We make sense out of something that's basically nonsense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and meaning is something that we've just sort of created. We didn't find it. Mm-hmm. Um, manufactured it in order to survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really interesting, but mm-hmm. but um, I'm just wondering how how can for those of us if we if we believe that there actually is a story that we are not pulling out of thin air that we didn't invent um, that we need to find our place in that and 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 in a sense that's where that's the ultimate coming home, finding meaning, like, well, what, what was my life mean? It's because the big story that I'm part of here. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we, 
how we talk about that to, to, to someone that thinks that meaning is something that we just, um, as human beings, need to manufacture. It's not a mm-hmm. thing. I mean, we're not finding anything that's actually mm-hmm. there. We're just uh, constructing and imposing something on, on mm-hmm. basically meaningless mm-hmm. life. Because uh, to some degree, it's understandable. To some degree, we do make sense out of a lot of stuff that's yeah. nonsense. Like, a lot of this, like normal, boring, stupid stuff that happens to me, I don't remember it, and I don't tell people about it, and I don't, when I'm telling my story, I don't mention those things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're very selective, you know? Mm-hmm. And we, and something important happens to us, and we look back at it in retrospect, and we're like, wow, that was really significant, and we tell mm-hmm. that story as a turning point, you know, mm-hmm. we're creating narrative. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that, but, but, uh, yeah, I'll just stop talking. But just mm-hmm. finding, finding meaning that's there. Yeah. As opposed to... Yeah, I mean... Yeah. I guess the question that I would have is how do we know how to do that if there isn't any meaning there? Like, why do we do that then? Um, Makes life way harder to to need meaning. Well, it does, yeah, in a lot of ways. Um, How can we know what really means anything if we just make up our own meaning for it? Right, yeah. It's not a very satisfying thing if you really Mm -hmm. think about it. To know that we were made to mean something by somebody who knows the whole story mm-hmm. of, of everything is a much more satisfying thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Creating. Right. I read an article to our students sometimes by Neil Postman some years ago, uh, and about. He's doing book review, a couple of different books. He said, we have absolutely an absence of knowing a story, a big story. And he says, if you ask people really seriously, it, what they conceive of is the big story is it began with an accident, and it will end with an accident. Mm-hmm. And here you are in the middle. Mm-hmm. And so your question, I think, to ask what story you're in is a really, I think it's a good question to press people to think, because we do need meaning, and we're living in a society that makes us satisfied with lower and lower and smaller and smaller meetings. Yeah. And, and because they, you lose track of the big ones, even being a moral person, well, who knows what morality is? So you, it's less and less and less. What makes you happy, what satisfies your needs, and so on. All these things crumble because they're idols when they're meant to perform the, the, uh, the, the meaning-giving role. So I think it's a wonderful question to, to press out and think mm-hmm. of ways to express, mm-hmm. uh, to get people to think in a bigger way than they usually do. Yeah, because I think that the um, the difference or lack of difference between the story that we think we're in, we would like to be in, we want to say we're in, versus the story that we're actually acting out by our behavior, by our language, by our whatever, all the ways of being in the world. Um, like, is there a discrepancy between those? And if so, why? Because um, I think sometimes people might say, like, yeah, life does have no meaning, but then they live like it does. That's right. Um, the way they live is actually much closer to the Christian faith than the big story they have in their, right. in their head. Yeah, so what, so, yeah, pushing on that a little bit, I think, for ourselves, too, is so essential. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Marty. I was just thinking of uh, Mrs. Schaefer's book, The Tapestry. Mm-hmm. Um, 
looking at life. She put, she she gives the image that we're all we see is the backside of the tapestry right now, which is lots of knots and you know loose threads, loose threads knots. Mm-hmm. We don't see we so we may not necess- we may not necessarily see exactly how our story fits in the big story. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll we but we will one day see much better <laughs> when we see the front side of the tapestry, mm-hmm. which is. But the whole thing is in the context of the big story that we do know, mm-hmm. and and the need to trust God um, for for our lives, for the details of our lives, and so on, and for and for, and for how it fits into uh, how how my life, my story fits into the big story. And I think it's it's one of the reasons the Bible so strong admonitions and warnings against going to mediums, against fortune tellers. Somebody who's going to tell you what your story is ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Tell you, you know, are you going to be a success or a failure or are you going to mm-hmm. die young or you, you know, mm-hmm. all these things. That that, that that just short circuits the whole thing of trusting God and you said, practice all the, all the different ways you said that we, we, that we grow, that we get God's story into us through practice, mm-hmm. through litur- liturgy. Um, it's interesting that Wis- the Bible talks about wisdom mm-hmm. as growing through practice, mm-hmm. through the practicing. We just learn to distinguish between good and evil. Mm-hmm. We're not just we're not born doing that. We're not mm-hmm. you know, toddlers aren't very good at knowing the difference between good and evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, but the, but by practice that happens. And then as we do that, we really we we need we need to trust God for how our story. That trust and and imitate the people around us who are Christ-like and imitate Jesus mm-hmm. <laughs> and trust yeah. that when we see the the whole tapestry, we'll be able to marvel, mm-hmm. you know. And Mrs. Schaefer also used to say, "None of us have any idea what the most important day of our life is. Mm-hmm. We may think the most important day of our life mm-hmm. is some big dramatic thing that happened, and we have no idea." Mm-hmm. We're, go- we're going to be surprised mm-hmm. to find maybe the impact an offhand comment made in someone else's life. That you may not remember it. The yeah. most important day of your probably life. probably won't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I think is really, really helpful perspective on mm-hmm. again, what, again, trusting <laughs> trusting God when we <clears throat> can't see clearly or interpret things clearly. Mm-hmm. And there's a loom with a weaver. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the other language the Bible uses for this is is by losing our lives we find them. Right. <laughs> um, because we, you know, to, to hold on and think I have to build it myself, you know. Right. And, and create my own identity and my own meaning and all of mm-hmm. that. We have to lose that to really and trust mm-hmm. that we're in a much bigger story that we than we don't see it all and you don't mm-hmm. understand it all. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, it gets so, mm. of course, so significant that Jesus said that mm. um, in in the part two of the series. I talked a lot more about being made in the image of God and, and about Jesus as the image of God and the story that he lives out is in the way that it's Summarized, if you will, in in Philippians two, is that U shape going all the way down, humbling himself to death, um, 
then being highly exalted. That's like the, sh- the sh- that's the shape of our lives too, and it's not um, it's, it's not really a surprise, you know. Like if there is the down <laughs> downtrend. Um, I don't really know where I was going with all of that, but just just saying like um, this isn't a story that that we haven't seen acted out before. It's mm-hmm. acted out by Jesus. Um, he shows us what it means to lose your life and find it, and he shows it shows us what it means to live, you know, according to the fruits of the spirit and all of those things. Um, yeah, it's not like we don't have a model. <laughs> yeah. Did you, yeah. Just actually. a quick thought on the, like, how do we find, like, are there, Ben's question with meaning, and, and mm-hmm. I was just, like, with the pattern of Christ's life and what you were saying, like, yeah, I think a lot, of, a lot of times, like, uh, suffering in life really puts huge question marks on the stories we've been telling ourselves mm-hmm. when things go awry when the carpet is pulled out underneath us. Yeah, that's when we look for maybe not like a complete uh, exhaustive explanation of meaning or, or of what's going on, but we do look for meaning in suffering and suffering really, I think, can show how a lot of stories we choose to live in just are not satisfactory for mm-hmm. friends and I were wondering recently like how much more persuasive could the church be if instead of towing a line like on these various um, like hot topic issues or whatever mm-hmm. if we invited people to see like what story are you participating in mm-hmm. or like if we painted it as like instead of like well here's the line there's no reason for the line it's just the line but you better be on the right side of the line Versus the power of, like, mm-hmm. um, like, yeah, I'm actually, yeah, there's a, there's a title of a book. Well, actually, I won't, I'm going to hold that back. But, um, yeah, just thinking of inviting people to discern, mm-hmm. like, what story their lives are telling, even over and above what lines they're holding. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it could be a lot That's more satisfying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really huge, and it and it helps us then. <clears throat> yes, it also helps us understand why people behave the way they do. If we can understand what story they think they're in, what story they're telling, mm-hmm. um, and I think that of that. Um, actually, in my conversation with Chris Peters, who I mentioned, he talked about like how if there's someone who's just like on the opposite side of an issue from me. Like, how do I know? How can I figure out what? how they got there and, and all of that and I think the framework of, of saying like what what story are you telling about you know what America is supposed to be for example or what um, what sexuality is for like whatever but that there's a story there it's not just like these are five facts that I know about this and this is why I live this way um, there's way way more happening and I think there's more space for talking across those divides if we do use that language of story. Mm-hmm. 
That's good. Well, thank you all for thank being you. here tonight. Thank you.